Guru Nation, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. It really means a lot to me. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. Thank you so much. Leave a review. I wanted to also thank my sponsors who make this show possible. The first one is Viva Sight Vault. Absolutely free. By the way, links to all of this stuff is in the show notes. Viva Sight Vault. If you are a site and you wanted to dip your toe into going digital and for e-reg and to start messing around with e-signatures, this is the way to go. They are the biggest name in our industry from a tech vendor standpoint. They're site-centric. They make this easy for us, guys and gals. And it's absolutely free. Sites.viva.com. Check it out. I use it. I also use Versatrail, which is my next sponsor. Versatrail has made my life so easy as a coordinator from an organization standpoint. Links to all these portals are in one easy place. You can literally link to anything you can think of, whether it's a protocol or it's the latest informed consent form or it's the IRT or it's the vendor to upload this or the other vendor to upload that. It's all there in one easy place. Not to mention, they do a lot on the feasibility side, which makes feasibility surveys a breeze. Check it out. This is a company that is going places. Versatrail. My next sponsor is Creo. I've been using Creo for years. They are eSource and eReg and CTMS and patient database and eConsent and so many more other things. And while they are not free, I definitely think it is worth the price for what you are getting. It has streamlined my research studies and my site, and I got all my coordinators trained on it, and I could not picture running my site without Creo. So check it out. Link in the show note. Finally, Inato, a free service for business development. Go figure. Link in the show note. It makes figuring out what studies you want easier. It makes figuring out what you're going to get if you accept the study super simple. And it really streamlines the process for knowing what's out there on the market. You can use it for as many investigators as you have. And again, it's absolutely free in Nato. Also in the show notes are links to the businesses I own, specifically DSCS, where we help sites get studies, do their contracts, help you with surveys, anything else you can think of, a shoulder to cry on, low monthly fee. And then we have the CRA, CRC Academies and everything else live 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 guru nation we are live it's been very chaotic very busy i just finished shooting some videos the site was screening a patient we're about to randomize another patient for a very difficult study shout out to the sponsors by the way i've been doing a lot of sponsor related stuff too so versatrial versatrial is a must have if you're a site it's free it organizes all your study portals. It does a whole bunch of feasibility stuff for you, too, where it makes future feasibility so much easier for you. Uh, check it out. It's free. Link underneath. Inato, business development for sites, also free. Um, you can get matched up with appropriate studies for your site in, in your area, and they're putting sponsors in touch with sites. Absolutely free. Check it out. Um, Viva Site Vault, absolutely free. You ever wanted to use e-reg, digital, e-digital signatures for free? Viva Site Vault, it's all free stuff. The only one not free is Creo, but it has so much good stuff in there at an affordable price. E-source, e-reg, CTMS, reports, patient database, e-consent. Oh, Creo is like full of surprises. And good in a good way. These are all site-centric tools that I use and I love. Go check them out. I wanted to talk about the DCT FDA guidance. I haven't had a chance to get on LinkedIn and really like read them, but I have seen people commenting. And Joe Dustin, shout big shout out to Joe Dustin. 
he um let me let, let me share the the DCT guidance if you guys can see the screen Joe Dustin here I I invited him to come on he's busy but I got the DCT guidance in front of me due to Joe's resourcefulness and I'm going to go through it this is live like I I haven't looked at this all right, I've seen some comments and stuff. Like I'm, I'm aware somewhat, but I don't really know people's opinions too much. So I thought it'd be fun to go live and like check it out together and get my reaction in real time. So here we go. I am checking comments. I will take pauses from time to time and check comments. But let's get into it. Right. Uh, this just came out yesterday. Today's the June 21st for those watching or listening in the future. Draft guidance for decentralized clinical trials for drugs, biological products, and devices. The industry is buzzing over this. Not sure why. Let's find out. They usually, they're always buzzing over guidance. At the end of the day, guidance is just a guidance. They're giving sponsors, in a way, permission. Like, hey, we know these are tools you guys have been experimenting with and already using. Many of my studies already have elements of DCT in it. So... This is like in many ways nothing special, but it's like it's basically the FDA's green light for sponsors. Uh, and this is the guidances they have. All right. So, strategies to bring the trial to the patient, video and telemedicine visits. We already do this at our site. Digital health technologies. I mean, every study has tech, right? Um, it depends what you call tech, like ECGs at one point were technology, digital health technology too. Now they're talking about wearables. I have a study with EEGs. Um, that's very vague, but it's coming out. Continuous glucose monitoring, patient reported outcomes, direct distribution of products, electronic informed consents. We've been using it all year. We implemented e-consents at Yuma Clinical Trials this year. Um, no issues with it so far. Uh, one minor issue, but nothing big, nothing big home visits. We've been asking, we've been doing home visits anyways, as sites when a patient doesn't feel like coming in, but they need to return their IP. We've gone to their house. This was 2006. I would do this. I would go to patient house, collect the unused IP, give them the new IP, I'd have a transportation log that I'm taking it in my car and it's temperature controlled, all this stuff. This is nothing new, guys, 2006. But now you can have home visits where you send nurses uh, to the patient's homes. Uh, they could drop blood. And we haven't done all that yet. There is one study that we haven't randomized a patient yet that it's probably one of the more DCT uh, design trials I've had so far where they'll ship the drug to the patient's home. Um, but the first few visits, they want the patient to come to the office. So that's fine. Um, and it's it's a relatively easy study. It makes life a little easier for us as sites, but some of this stuff can get complicated, especially when you get to this fourth bullet, or what is this, one, two, three, four, five, it doesn't matter, the sixth bullet point, use of local healthcare providers and facilities. This is where it gets tricky to me. And yeah, I haven't seen this before, but typically when we have referring clinics, the referring doctors have not been sub-eyes unless they want to be. And then we would just make it as an additional study location on our 1572. And this sub-eye would be trained on the protocol. They'd be on the, 15, uh, on the 1572 as a sub-investigator. They would sign a financial disclosure form. But DCT takes this, it's like this idea, but on steroids. So you don't need to put them in 1572. This is the one thing I do know about this guidance that I've seen in the comments. But let's get into like exactly what that is. So why are regulators interested? Accessibility, patients with rare diseases, patients with mobility or cognitive challenges, diversity of patients, patient convenience. This is true. Like a lot of this stuff is convenient for patients efficiencies and no need to travel physical facility you don't need as much space anymore although you still do because in all these studies even the ones that are have dct components there's office visits and there's 
equipment you need at the office. So it's all the same. Um, and in a small town like Yuma, this is not really a benefit. Uh, but in the bigger cities like L.A., sometimes just driving seven miles is like an hour and a half. I could see how this could come in handy. Um, use of qualified community providers. This is something new. If you guys and gals remember pre-COVID, all the buzz was virtual trials. And this is what they were trying to do. Now, this, for some reason, didn't take off. and But that became an element of decentralized clinical trials. So use of qualified community providers. I can tell you, like, that's vague. Like, what makes someone qualified? It's like a CRC, right? What makes a CRC qualified to be a CRC? If you look at good clinical practice, it's the PI decides that they're qualified, right? And the sponsor agrees that they're qualified based on their site selection visit. That's it. So, like, what else? How do we qualify a community provider? They have the patience is most likely what I'm thinking. Um, but let's get into it. Let's get into it. Experience with COVID-19, contagious diseases. So if another pandemic were to hit, DCT would obviously make sense. That's correct. Remote assessments may differ from on-site assessments. Assessments performed by local healthcare providers may be more variable and less precise than assessments conducted by trial personnel. Obviously, um, what about, I saw Brad, shout out to Brad, Note to File Podcast. He mentioned on his post today, well, do we have to have a calibration log for these local healthcare providers? Because I go to my doctor's office, not my research, not my PI, my actual clinician for myself personally. And I'm curious because I do clinical research and I, I ask them, like, who calibrates your equipment? And they, they laugh at me like, what, what do you mean? We don't know what that means. Nobody does. <laughs> so in research, you have to have calibrated like it's in our SOPs. Well, our equipment gets calibrated every year. So if we're using a weighing scale or a blood pressure machine or a thermometer at a local healthcare provider's office, are they calibrated? Do they not have to be calibrated? It looks like I'm only on what slide? What slide am I on? Six of 27. So maybe, guys, I haven't looked at these. Maybe, Guru Nation, we have answers in this guidance. So far, I have questions. So far, it's just the reason why DCTs wanted, which who can argue? But the implementation, it's like, do we get guidance on this? Let's see. Let's see. So far, this bullet point is not um, guidance. It's just it's stating an idea. Uh, consideration of the statistical analysis to be performed. For inspectional purposes, there should be a physical location where all clinical trial-related records for participants under the investigator's care are accessible and where trial personnel can be in interviewed. So this would be a site. Okay. This may even be a bus. If a bus is a physical location, if it's a parked bus, it might even have an address. Uh, let's get to some comments before I move on. And hundreds of shipping boxes. Yeah. Wait till that healthcare provider gets like supply, gets a care package. It's not a care package when they send you boxes full of gel packs that you don't need. We don't need more gel packs. I wish we, if, if I could, if gel packs were money, Guru Nation, we'd be so rich as a site. Uh, Brendan says, what solutions do you see working best for PIs being asked to delegate these DCT staff for patient-facing visits above and beyond general compliance checks? So if a PI is going to be told, hey, we're going to send nurses that you don't know and that your staff doesn't know, but we're going to send nurses because we have a vendor in your area to the patient's homes. 
the PI is going to say, okay, well, how do you expect me to have oversight of what they're doing if I don't know these people? I've never trained them. We're assuming the vendor has is doing the training. So really, the PI can just check if the protocol is being followed and good clinical practice is being maintained. Like, what else is the PI supposed to do and the site supposed to do? Um, so if, if they start, I mean, time, let's see what happens. We have a study where there's going to be elements of this. There's no nurse going to patients' homes. It's just shipping the drug and the supply to patients' homes. Um, but you're right. Like, what happens? I mean, it's only going to take, like, one study, one site for there to be a screw-up. And then the PI is going to say, hey, I'm not going to accept any more trials with traveling nurses in my study. I'll do DCT, other elements of it, but traveling nurses, I don't do it anymore. And that we've seen similar situations where there's been studies before DCT where sponsors would pay for and send a coordinator to the site location to help the PI with the study uh, or things like data entry. And I hear stories that it was a nightmare. Like the site will not do those kind of studies again. So I can't imagine there's not going to be a case of this happening there as well. Stephanie from Creo. Shout out to Creo. I need gel packs. I got plenty of gel packs. Goodwill does not accept gel packs. We've tried. They do not accept. What we need is checks, guys. We need our payments. Um. The guidelines are never specific. They expect the sponsor and the site to come up with how the guidelines work. Rod Raphael, you are a master of running the sites. I love to get your thoughts on these slides as we go through them more. But I agree. Let's see. Let's see. Ultimately, look, all this stuff is nice. But if, if the sites don't like this, like it's just going to be another virtual trials. Why didn't virtual trials work out? Maybe some industry people are watching that can tell me. Like, why did virtual trials not work out? Let's go back a few slides. Let me go back a few slides. Where was it? Uh, where was it? Where was it? Use of local. No, no. There was the one that said qualified healthcare. See, that word, that word changes everything. Uh, where was it, guys? <laughs> did we get here i don't know you guys seen the slide why didn't virtual trials work out virtual trials were basically qualified investigators doing all this stuff remotely but why didn't it work out and then where are where are the similarities and differences between that and this stuff because dct i don't see dct as one strategy i just see dct as technology it's like the catch-all phrase for technology that allows convenience for patients. So, you know, if the traveling nurse thing doesn't work, they'll just take that out, but they'll leave telehealth. Uh, so this is like a, this is a movie that's like we're in the middle of it, and it, it could change. Uh, Hamid says, ICHGCP E6 addendum 5.18.3. Man, you're on it. All right, slide seven. Remote visits can occur at locations such as participants' homes or a local healthcare facility. Telehealth visits can be considered by investigators. Remote in-person visits and trial-related activities can be conducted by trial personnel who are sent to participants' homes or preferred locations. I think if you give the sites the option, the sites will do what's best for the patient. So if you give the site an option like, hey, telehealth visits can be considered you can send a traveling nurse if you want, but you don't have to. If they give sites the option, sites will generally do what's best for the patient and best for GCP adherence and protocol compliance. If you mandate sites do something, you're just going to get sites to refuse to do those kind of things. Uh, unless those things work really well, which then they'll say, hey, that's great. I wish more studies had this. Uh, remote in-person visits and trial-related activities. So here's a remote in-person visit. 
and trial-related activities may also be conducted by local health care providers who are located close to trial participants' homes. So this is um, this is like virtual trials right here because you have like a PI. So what's to say, I'm, I'm assuming the PI still has to be licensed in the state where the patient is seen, right? So here in Arizona, we're very close to California border. We're like 10 minutes away. So theoretically, my PI in Arizona, we can have a patient that lives in California. If that patient comes to our Arizona site, our PI is able to do what an MD is allowed to do in the state of Arizona. But if the patient goes to California and is seen by a healthcare provider in California who's not a sub-I, he's just a delegated person of the PI, like, can the PI actually oversee this being in Arizona? So you might have, like, an investigator in every state, which is now going back to what virtual trials were. Uh, I mean, yeah, in the, in the name of convenience, that might work, but who's going to recruit the patients? Uh, local healthcare providers, local HCPs. So this is like five slides so far about local healthcare providers. Local healthcare providers, such as doctors or nurses, may be used by sponsors or investigators to perform certain trial-related activities. The trial-related services they provide should not differ from those that they are qualified to perform in clinical practice. These services should not require a detailed knowledge of the protocol or the IP. So something like a physical exam. You don't need to know anything about the study or the IP to do a physical. This makes sense. Vital signs. This makes sense. Blood draw. This makes sense. Um, doing ECG. This makes sense. Ordering an x-ray, this makes sense. Ordering an MRI, this makes sense. So you can get a lot of the assessments done virtually. The issue is paying the that's those staff. Because if, if it's a local healthcare provider... What's the difference between paying them to do this virtually versus just paying them to do this in person? I guess the convenience is now for the local healthcare provider that they don't have to come to another location, but they might have to go to the patient's home or the patients might have to go to their clinic. And if they're going to go to their clinic, why not they just come to our clinic so yeah, it's it's unclear like the value of this, but I guess I can see it in a lot of cases. Um, but PI oversight, it all boils down to the PI. Like if this, in my opinion, if a PI has one bad experience doing this, they will never want to do another DCT thing again. So this better work really good. Like the beta version better be the final draft published version. Uh, these services should not require a detailed knowledge. Okay, trial-related activities unique to research and or require a detailed knowledge of the protocol, which, by the way, is most of them, should be performed by qualified trial personnel who have been appropriately trained. But we're already doing this. Like with a phlebotomist in our office, they draw blood. They don't know what study it is. We give them the tubes. Um, same thing with like medical assistants in the office, like, Hey, do EKG, do vitals. They don't need to know what the study is. Now, sometimes you need to do vitals 15 minutes post-dose, 10 minutes pre-dose, sitting, standing, EKG and triplicates with five minutes apart with vitals in between. That's where maybe a coordinator will be in that room saying, hey, now we need vitals. Now we need EKG. But in my world, the coordinators are the ones doing this anyways. So it's just one less person that you need. But not all. I realize not all sites are my sites. Uh, uh, I want to know your guys' thoughts. Allison says, Care Access got in trouble with this. Yeah, absolutely got in trouble. The 
Yeah, I won't make any more Caraxes jokes. Rod says, these ideas are only going to work if a sponsor agrees. Yep, and Rod, sponsors, they're smarter now. They they actually care what the PIs think. Remotely identified AEs. This is nothing new. We actually had an AE remotely identified via a patient last week. She texted one of the CRCs about a new AE. It wasn't a visit either. She just texted. Like, that's a remotely identified AE. We're already doing this. Protocol should specify how adverse events identified remotely will be evaluated and managed. It's evaluated and managed the same exact way it's managed in the clinic. It's documented contemporaneously and entered in EDC. And PI is aware, made aware. Protocol should describe how care will be provided for adverse events that require urgent or in-person attention. Uh, this sounds like an um, emergency room type of thing. Or in-person attention. This AE is not urgent that we have with our patient. Um, but we did make an unscheduled visit to follow up on it. So, like, this this stuff is... Sites should are, are already doing this. I don't, I don't get, like, what's the big deal about all this? Um, sponsors and investigators' responsibility to ensure that remote clinical trial visits conducted via telehealth comply with laws governing telehealth in the relevant U.S. states or territories or other countries. So if you're in California... New York or another highly regulated state, there's less you can do in those states. Incorporation of digital health technologies into clinical trials can support decentralization. But yeah, this is like, um, I don't even know why that is in there. This bullet points in here for people that don't understand research. That's why it's there. Sponsors should ensure that digital health technologies are available and suitable for use by all trial participants. So this is like access to the technologies. Draft guidance was published in December 2021. Sponsor role and responsibility. Sponsor responsibilities are the same for DCT and traditional site-based trials. Should strive for diversity and inclusiveness in trial populations. Yes, but how? How will a technology help this that someone still has to convince those patients to do the study in the first place and then if you're saying well we're reaching people we couldn't reach before because they're remote well then how do you and you just said in the guidance a few slides back that they're not necessarily people that are gonna know the study right so how do you do proper informed consent I guess remotely but how do you even get to that point because most patients don't just say hey i want to show up to do an informed consent somebody's talking to them beforehand on the phone or via text or via email convincing them persuading them that maybe the study is worth consideration so there's already been like a, a like a like a sale that occurs before the patient even shows up to do an informed consent, whether it's in person or digitally, doesn't matter. This persuasion needs to be done by somebody trained on the study. So, I don't know. I don't see how this is going to work. That has to be a site staff or a sponsor staff. But then who's the sponsors don't like to do this stuff because they don't want patient interaction. So are you going to let a vendor do this? Vendors get them to the point where the site still needs to talk to them. Um, anyways, I have a hot take. Let me check the comments in the meantime. I have a hot take in 10 years. So 2033, sites will have no problem getting patient leads. So there will be plenty of patients passively sent to them by some vendor. But somebody not very experienced with the protocol, talked to them and did a superficial pre-screening. But someone at the site level needs to have the full conversation, like the full pre-screening 
and then they have the full understanding of the protocol and then schedule the informed consent and the screening visit. But because of these leads, there'll be an abundance of patient leads. The studies are going to get more complex. So I think the screen fail rates are going to be a lot higher. And I think the staff are going to have to, the sites are going to have to create a new position like protocol expert at the site that is able to sort through all these leads or maybe AI, but it's not even going to be AI. Maybe, maybe AI will sort through who's likely to qualify, but someone at the staff, someone at the site is going to have to convince. I don't think this sales aspect can be outsourced properly. I think it has to be someone at the site level. Um, but yeah, so that's my hot take. I don't know if it's very hot. Uh, slide 13. Wow, well, we got to get through these. Investigator role and responsibilities. I don't even need to read the rest. They're going to say investigator responsible for the full conduct of the trial at the site. So respond to, responsible for the conduct of the C, responsible for the DCT and the oversight of individuals delegated to perform trial-related activities. So a few slides ago, it said they don't have to know, these delegated people don't have to know um, the trial well. But a few slides later, it says the PI is responsible for who they're delegating to perform trial-related activities. So there's like a contradiction there too. Like what if they don't like this person? Or what if they think, no, this person is not going to work well? Or we're, our, we're having problems with this person well. I don't like this study nurse. I want the other one. Uh, set three patients in a row complained about this study nurse. Um, a key difference for DCTs is the extent to which the investigator uses telehealth, trial personnel working remotely, local health care providers, and or DHTs in the conduct of the trial. Decentralized features may necessitate additional training, coordination, and standard operating procedures to ensure consistent implementation. So here's where they say, hey, the, the staff you delegate, they don't necessarily need to be trained. But a few slides later, they say they may necessitate additional training. So which one is it? Well, I guess it's up to the PI to decide. Uh, when permitted by the trial protocol, investigators may delegate trial-related activities to local health care providers to perform trial-related procedures that require in-person interaction with trial participants. A critical consideration when delegating trial-related activities to local HCPs is the potential for variability in the approach across different practices. Yeah. Video conferencing and other technology may be useful to allow investigators to oversee trial personnel performing activities described in the trial protocol at participants' locations. So if you're using eSource, and there's a medical assistant at a local healthcare provider's office taking vitals. You have to give that medical assistant access to, let's say, Creo, okay, which is my e-source. But now you need to train that medical assistant on Creo. It's like at least an hour training, right? Okay. Now, maybe the vitals have to be done in a certain time point, and any deviations from that time point is a deviation. Minor, but a lot of minor deviations adding up is not a good look. So now you got to train this person who a few slides ago we said didn't need to be trained. Well, they actually do have to be trained. Okay. Do they go on the training log? Probably. Do they go on the delegation log? I don't know. Uh, so this just raises, to me, raises more questions than it answers. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff in between. Like, okay, that's one study. Well, what if we're doing like 20 studies? Uh, and then the whole calibration question I asked earlier. Video conferencing, another tech. And the, my point with all this stuff is like, I work in three clinics right now in Yuma that are private practices. And then they allow us to work in there to do research as well. None of these places had calibrated equipment. We came in and calibrated everything. 
all right? None of these MAs would have done this training on their own. We had to make sure the training's getting done. But time is money at these clinics. Medical private practices are high-volume clinics. Research is like relatively low-volume visits. An MA having to train for like a few hours to be able to do vitals and probably having to get retrained and having to do vitals, not the way they like to do it, but sitting and then standing and then 15 minutes apart, like 15 minutes apart for MA would have already seen like three patients in a, in a regular clinic. So you're asking this MA to not just do things a little bit differently, but to also spend like four times the amount of time on the procedure. Cause let's face it, a research and procedure is not the same as a private practice procedure in oncology. They might be, but not in like the protocols I have. These ideas are only going to work if a sponsor agrees. Tom says, and other technologies, trial, web, smartphone apps with instant messaging support. Yikes. <laughs> Wait till the AEs start coming in on the instant messaging support. And they go to some vendor. And then the vendor emails the coordinator in the morning, like basically pages of conversations. And the coordinator's got to go through it and see was there AE listed and why didn't the patient just text me it's a lot easier if they text me so I don't know I'm not convinced on this stuff so far slide 14 of 27 I guess there's nothing to be convinced about it's already happening but documentation investigators sub investigators local healthcare provider three different tiers right 1572 when trial personnel contribute directly and significant and significantly to the trial data, they should be included on the 1572 as sub So would vital signs be contributing significantly? Well, what if blood pressure is one of the primary endpoints? Local healthcare providers should not be listed on Form 1572 as sub-investigators. However, local healthcare providers should be included in a task log. So this is something brand new. It's a task log. It's not a delegation of duties log. It's a task log. So it sounds like yet another log. Yet another vague understanding of who goes on what form. It's hard enough when like Half of the sponsors want the coordinators to be listed in box six of the 1572 and the other half don't like because significant tri significantly contribute to the trial data study coordinators sig significantly contribute trial data more than PIs do. So they should be on 1572. According to this local healthcare providers, if they're doing half of the assessments remotely should not be on there however local health care providers should be on a task log so this is something new for device trials local health care providers are generally not considered investigators so for devices local health care providers are not considered investigators it should not be included in the ide list of investigators however these local healthcare providers should be included in a task log. Here's the task log. So apparently this is going to be something important, guys and gals. Buckle up. It's, it's going to get bumpy. Investigators must maintain a task log of local healthcare providers who perform trial-related activities. Task logs should include the names and affiliations of the local healthcare providers, Description of their roles and assigned tasks. Date these local healthcare providers were added to the log and locations where these activities are conducted. Interestingly enough, no training mentioned there. So the task log is not a training log. It's just a task log. Now, do you document training on these tasks? Or do you just assume, well, since they do these tasks in their day-to-day -day practice... We're just going to have them do these tasks here, 
even the, the tasks here in these studies sometimes are very different than the way they do their tasks in their practice. It's like blood pressure standing and sitting is like the simplest thing that comes to my mind. I go see my doctor a few times a year. They always take it sitting. They never take it sitting and standing, much less 15 minutes apart. So how do you document they've been trained that they're doing it properly? This is going to cause a lot of deviations, guys. Get ready for a lot of deviations, Guru Nation. Uh, remote SDV and remote monitoring, are they the same? Ah, uh, Hamid, this is a whole other can of worms, man. We're just talking about remote, like doing the patient visits, not the monitoring visits. Denise says, what in the regulatory nightmare is a task log? I don't know. I'm like seeing it live myself for the first time. Not only do they not get trained on these task logs, but these task logs should be available to the FDA during inspections. So if the FDA finds this task log, but finds that the HCP is not doing the task as per protocol, then the PI, it's the PI's fault. And then the PI is probably going to have to retrain this HCP but the HCP was never trained in the first place, so it's not a retraining. It's an initial training. And then the question will be brought up, why weren't they trained initially? Which, yeah, it turns into a nightmare, Denise. You're right. So then what's the difference between that and just the training log? I don't think we needed this task log. I think we need... We don't need to add more complexity. I'm going to pause right now. I see why people are commenting about this. It's, it's almost like they're trolling with the sites. Like, our jobs are hard enough as it is. And now you want us to do more and take on more liability. More liability for the PIs and less control for the PIs equals unhappy PIs. Somebody make a meme of this right now. Somebody watching. Less control. More liability. I'm going to make a meme, guys. Someone beat me to it, but I'm going to come up with a good template. Equals unhappy PIs. <laughs> All right. You know it's going to be a hit when you crack yourself up. All clinical lab facilities should be listed on 1572. Yeah, this is nothing new. Informed consent and IRBs. I don't think this should be any different. Like ICF can be done virtually now. Um we do e-consent, but we always do it in person in the office, but it's e-consent. But we give them a tablet or a laptop, and they'll do it through Creo. But I guess we could do it remotely, too, so that would be no different. We would just have to add Zoom. Um, now the question would be the process of consent. It's documented. Or do you want, like, the Zoom recording? Um, but then should we not have the patient's face on there? but the voice is okay or do we not have the zoom recording and just do document? I guess that's like uh, up to the site SOPs. Uh, investigators may obtain electric informed consent from trial participants at their remote locations. Okay. Recommend the use of a central IRB in decentralized clinical trials to facilitate efficient review of the protocol. Okay. So central IRB. The nature of the drug should be considered when determining whether administration outside of a site in a DCT is appropriate. Yeah. So there's been lately we've been getting a lot of self-administered type of things like all these all these weight loss things. It's not a secret. All these weight loss drugs and they're meant to be self-administered. Um, that makes sense. And initially it makes sense to train the patient on how to use it in the clinic. So probably a few in-person visits and then ship the IP to the patient's house that uh, those I get, but like something like a monoclonal antibody infusion that takes four hours and maybe like a two hour safety follow-up or four hour safety follow-up. I mean, that would make sense at the site. It would make sense at the healthcare provider's office too, because theoretically the patient is comfortable with the, and I'm using air quotes for those listening on the podcast, the patient's more comfortable in their healthcare provider's office but I've been to my healthcare provider's office. 
I wouldn't want to be in that room for eight hours. At a research site, the site has the, and many sites do this, they make it accommodating for patients. Like, we'll even bring them food. We'll bring them, like, drinks. We'll spoil them. Why? Because we have the incentive to keep this patient happy, whereas the healthcare provider maybe doesn't because they don't know research. So eight-hour visit, I keep them in their room, just go give them the infusion, but who's going to bring them food? Like, I mean, how many are going to do that? That's not what they do. Clinical trials are more boutique, like <clears throat> luxury experience. We even will give them, like, TVs and Internet, and we, we accommodate them. So that's that's where I see problems there with the longer um, IP administrations. Uh, Lynn says, talk about GCP. Yeah, good clinical practice. Keep patients safe. Retention might be an issue. Like, this is meant to improve retention. I don't want to judge it too soon, but I already see problems. And there's not to say that there's not problems with the way it's currently done either, but I think sites do a fairly good job of retaining patients. Uh, because the incentives there. Investigational product devices. Consider the type of medical device, its intended use, its instructions. Medical devices suitable for home use that do not pose significant risk may be appropriate for use at home. Um, and then those that are not should be user administered by qualified trial personnel. Yeah. And distribution of IP. We already have studies where it's sent to the patient's home. So. This is nothing new. It's already being done. Same thing with the shipping, shipping the IP when it's appropriate. Safety monitoring plan. Sponsors should implement a safety monitoring plan to ensure the safety and welfare of trial participants. Safety monitoring plans should take the decentralized nature of the trial into account and ensure that adverse events are appropriately captured and adequately addressed. So how would they do that? They're probably going to give the patient, like the comment said earlier, who was it, Brendan? Tom. Tom said, web smartphone apps with instant messaging support. If All right, I'm going to pause again. If you take, in the two years that I've been running Umaclenco trials, we've probably had, let's just say 100 patients. If you, if you take those 100 patients, I would bet money on this, and you give them the option to download an app and log into that app, which, by the way, are not user-friendly. I've used them. Log into an app, an unfamiliar app at that, and it's the same app where your diary is, so it should be easy for you. But there's other option in there besides diary where if you could find it, you could message someone about your AE. If you give them that option or give them the option, text your coordinator. Here's their number, which is what we're doing. To tell us anything about how you're feeling or anything else. I don't know about 100 out of 100 because there's always one that doesn't understand what you're telling them. But the majority, the vast majority, are choosing to text the coordinator and not to type into some app where they don't know where the info is going. And they're skeptical of the drug companies, guys. Like, these patients are skeptical. Alaba says there is TechRow app. There could be all kinds of apps. There's already an app on everyone's phone called Text that everyone's familiar with. Uh, furthermore, safety monitoring plans should describe how participants are expected to respond to and report adverse events. So how about text your coordinator, call the emergency after hours line, or call 911? Or log into an app that's not very user-friendly. Uh, safety monitoring plan continues. 
Trial participants must be able to contact trial personnel to report adverse events and have pertinent questions answered. So they do. There's the plain old-fashioned telephone. Text works really well. If it's an emergency, everyone's calling 911, whether you're in a study or not. I'm not logging into an app for that. Uh, trial participants should be able to arrange for an unscheduled visit using telehealth or in-person visit as appropriate. Yeah. So they can with um, telephone. If significant safety risk emerge because of remote administration or use of an IP, sponsors must discontinue remote administration or use. If authorized in the protocol, routine safety monitoring involving lab testing and imaging may be performed using local clinical lab facilities. Good luck with this, guys. I'm dealing with x-ray vendors right now and just have very simple instructions. This x-ray vendor is huge. They have like revolving door of technicians. But the one x-ray technician that knows what they're doing is only there Wednesday and Thursday. So I tell my staff, we can only have patients go there Wednesday and Thursday. I'm tired of having repeat x-rays, and I'm tired of answering these dumb queries. So good luck with this for outsourcing to imaging facilities uh, remotely. It's hard enough to handle locally. Software can be used to perform multiple functions to manage DCT operations. Training should be provided to all parties using software to support the conduct of a DCT. Here's another training for those healthcare providers that don't need training, supposedly. Here's another training. You know what those HCPs are going to tell me? Time is money. Like, what am I doing all this training for? I could have seen four patients in this time. They're going to want to get paid for this, guys. So unless sponsor is paying for this. Uh, and sponsor probably is going to pay for this, but then who's going to pay a site to manage them doing this stuff properly? That's a full-time job right there, dealing with external vendors. So maybe that's going to be like a new position at the sites too, external vendor relations and training. Software programs that are used to produce and process trial records required by FDA Subject to 21 CFR Part 11, real-time video interactions, including telehealth, are not considered electronic records. Okay, so there goes my question earlier about should the Zooms be recorded. Nope. They're not considered electronic records. Not yet, at least. Docket comments. And that's it. You can submit your comments. <laughs> Go ahead and submit your comments. Only until August 1st, guys. Then it's over. You can't submit. And then you can write, email, or mail them to Rockville. So, yeah, I'm done. Glad we got through that. Uh, I don't know. You know my thoughts already. Let me know your thoughts in the comments. Let's just say it's very interesting. Like, subscribe, comment, share, Guru Nation. Bye-bye.